Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Simon Head from Rochester in the UK. Chamat Karsandu from Toronto in Canada. And we're bringing you yet more fight coverage leading into the weekend. It's a, it's a double header, Sandu. We've got Bellator Friday, UFC Saturday. The train just keeps on rolling. Even though this is kind of a quiet week, we've still got two big events coming up this weekend. Yes, yeah, certainly. And absolutely, for those of you who are hardcore MMA fans, you're probably going to be tuning into a four-fight uh, card on Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender series. Uh, so th there's just so much MMA back um, with one Ryzen, Bellator, UFC, and God bless the industry, God bless the sport, because uh, it means we have a lot to talk about every single week. Yeah, definitely. And uh, this past weekend, every, even even the smaller events where maybe you look at the fight card and you think. Well, what are we going to be talking about at the end of this one? What we're talking about at the end of the one we had this past weekend is a bit of a shock. Derek Brunson, who's been in and around sort of the top 10 of the UFC's middleweight division for probably the last three or four years, I would imagine, um, beat Edmund Shabazian. Now, okay, for a guy to be ranked in that 185-pound division for as long as Derek Brunson has to get a win shouldn't be that surprising. But Edmund Shabazian had a lot of hype behind him heading into this one. I know I had him picked to win the fight this weekend. I know a lot of my colleagues at MMA Junkie had him picked to win this weekend. And uh, Brunson did the business and finished him uh, in the third round. Uh, TKO arguably should have finished him in the second round. Um, I think there was a bit of debate over whether he should have been allowed out of his corner for that third round. But he was. Um, and it didn't take Brunson that much longer to get the job done. It's one of those sort of trap fight Sandu, isn't it? I mean, you've got this guy who's been in and around the the, uh, the the middleweight rankings for a long time, but never really managed to sort of make that leap to the, the sort of upper echelon. And then you've got this shining star, this guy coming out of Ronda Rousey's gym, and he's actually managed by Ronda Rousey's management company. Undefeated, spectacular head kick knockout in his in his last outing. All the hype was behind him. And this was one of those fights where the young prospect sort of finds his level a little bit. And now it's, you know, the, the, the important thing now is going to be to watch what he does next, how he bounces back from this and whether he has actually found his level completely or whether he's able to move on from it. But what did you make of that main event at the weekend? Yeah, first of all, with regards to the stoppage, the only thing I didn't like about the end of the second round is that there seemed to be just a moment of hesitation from Herb Dean like there wasn't a decisiveness in terms of like when he was kind of like waving it off I thought the fight was over for a second but it was the end of the round so it was a bit it's a bit murky but I'll say this much the the, the, the as soon as the third round started Herb Dean gave Edmund Shabazian an opportunity to show that he was still in the fight and then I don't think he get, allowed him to take any more punishment that was absolutely needed in that third round. So ultimately, in the third round, I thought it was a good stoppage. But I think in general, I think Herb Dean's had better weeks, if I'm being honest, if you take into consideration what he had to deal with and what happened the weekend before. So that's the stoppage and Herb Dean and that old situation. Now, when it comes to Edmund Shabazian, mate, I will hold my hands up high. I was fully aboard the hype train and drinking the Kool-Aid along with pretty much everyone else. It reminds me of the whole Israel Adesanya situation um, because he burst onto the scene of the UFC and I was on board and you know we've seen how that kind of paid out you know and 
every now and then you see someone burst onto the scene. You know, we look at Sean O'Malley uh, and the year he's having at the moment. I'm, I'm aboard that hype train as well. I'm not going to lie. With Edmund Shabazian, he had everything going for him heading into the weekend, undefeated, young prospect, trying to become the youngest UFC champion uh, in, in the organization's history. You're managed by Ronda Rousey, right? So you've got that kudos and cachet. And with her kind of relationship with Dana White and the UFC, you know that you're going to you know, get some favoritism you know, behind the scenes when it comes to the marketing, the push, uh, you know, the matchmaking and all the rest of it. Now, I say matchmaking because I thought this was a great matchup for him. You know, he, he was riding a nice win streak. I thought it was a good step up in competition. And even though Derek Brunson had, had won a couple, I just thought stylistically with what Edmund Shabazian brings to the table... Uh, I thought he had enough tools in the locker to get the job done. But And to be honest with you, when they were standing and trading, Shabazzian was looking pretty good, if I'm being honest. It was just when things got to the cage, the grappling, to the ground, the just the pressure, uh, the body work. Derek Brunson just put it on him, man. And it just looked like... And thank God it was a three-round fight, by the way. Like, had this been... I don't think Edmund Shabazzian, as it currently stands has the gas tank to go like a hard 25 minutes, especially when you're kind of doing a lot of grappling and, and exchanges on the ground and things of that nature. But man, all the credit in the world to Derek Brunson for shutting up a lot of people, uh, for letting everyone know that he's still a player in the UFC's 185-pound weight class. Since that performance, since that win, he's actually moved up a place in the official UFC rankings. And I think just given the the overall picture of the middleweight division, it's, it's a good opportunity now for him to get a win and to hopefully get someone ranked above him, you know? So if I'm looking at the rankings as I am right now, you've got Darren Till ahead of you, Yoel Romero, Jack Hermanson, and then of course we know that uh, Jared Cannonier, he's booked to fight Robert Whitaker, and Paolo Costa is booked to fight Israel Adesanya. So Derek Brunson now is running a three-fight win streak um, and I think it was, uh, you know, circumstances. Hey, they weren't originally the main event. Slid in the, into that situation, and uh, all the credit in the world to Derek Brunson uh, for, I guess, once again proving that he is uh, at 36 years of age still someone uh, that everyone should take very, very seriously, especially in that top 10. Yeah, I mean, just looking back through his career, just in the UFC. Um, he's had five losses in the UFC, but look at the names, right? Israel Adesanya, Ronaldo Jacare Souza, Anderson Silva, Robert Whittaker, Yoel Romero. I mean, these are these are top tier guys. You know, there's no there's no mid card people beating him here. These are all guys who have either held the title or have been right up there within touching distance. Um, and uh, you know he he's not losing he's not losing to bums is he he's losing to the very best of the best when he does get beat he's won three in a row now uh, Elias Theodoru who is very difficult to look good against he beat him Ian Heinish who himself is on his he's moving his way up that that middleweight division as well um, he beat him and obviously now he's handed Edmund Shabazian his first O um, and all three of those wins have come since he's changed training camps, which is interesting. He used to be a Jackson's MMA guy. He's now moved down to, to South Florida. He's training at the gym that I know as Hard Knocks 365. It's now Samford MMA. I think they've got a sponsorship deal, so that's the name of the gym now. Samford MMA training under Henry Hooft. And uh, it seems to be working for him. You know, he had back-to-back losses um, in 2018. 
He's made the switch and he's had three wins on the spin, two decisions, and now that TKO finish of Edmund Shabazian. So we're, we're, we're seeing a new Derek Brunson, you know, just small little tweaks and changes. It's not, it's not entirely a leopard change in his spots, but they're just accentuating his positives. And it'll be interesting to see just what happens with him next, who they put him in with. Um, because we know he's a dangerous puncher. He's now using his wrestling, mixing things up a little bit more. Um, the thing with him in the past, the big sort of knock against him was he was too gung-ho. He, 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 lo- he loved his power a little too much and he'd just walk into stuff with his chin hanging out and he'd get clipped. Um, he's fighting a little bit smarter now and uh, under Henry Hooft, I think he'll tighten up that striking defense as well. And uh, yeah, three wins on the spin for him. Uh, great stuff. Very quickly before we move on, the thing about Shabazian and you know, you talk about everybody being on the hype train and I was exactly the same. The thing that really did that for me was the Brad Tavares fight, which was his last fight. And you mentioned Israel Adesanya, and that was the thing that really did it for me. I was there in Vegas when Adesanya fought Brad Tavares in the tough finale, and Adesanya absolutely pieced him up for, for, for the full five rounds in as dominant a win as you could ever wish to have in your first UFC headliner. But he didn't finish Brad Tavares, who is very, very tough to finish. Sebastian put him away. You know, Sebastian knocked him out with a head kick um, in in just about half a round. And that was in his most recent fight before this weekend. So for him to have been able to show that finishing power against a guy who, in his previous fight, had taken the champ the distance, um, that really sort of, sort of pricked my ears up. And he's like, okay, this guy, he can do what Adesanya's done, but he did it in like a blink of the eye by comparison. So it was a case of how, how will he go? He came up short at the weekend and, you know, fingers crossed for him. He'll bounce back. He'll get, he'll, he'll probably get another top fifth, 10, 15 ranked opponent, I would imagine. Maybe someone like Ian Heinish might make sense for him next. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens next with uh, with Edmund Shabazian. Another person who I think much was expected from this weekend was Joanne Calderwood. She looked like she was in pole position, Sandu, to get that next shot at Valentina Shevchenko. She opted to take a fight when she probably didn't need to. And she took on Brazil's Jennifer Meyer, who was on a, a good little run of form herself. And Jojo got beat in the first round. First round, armbar submission. Her hopes of fighting for the belt have, have evaporated into thin air pretty much at this point. And it looks as if Jennifer Meyer is going to go on and challenge Valentina Shevchenko for the, uh, the UFC Women's Flyweight title. Shevchenko actually tweeted shortly after the fight, I'll see you soon. Um, so that was that was a big shock. I know it, it kind of reminded me she was on her way up the uh, the strawweight division and she fought Marina Moroz in I think it was Poland. I think we were both there for it. Um, and uh, she got beat by Marina Moroz, and um, it was that was a surprise as well. I think she got subbed in that fight too, um, and uh, that put a right on the back foot as well. She was on the, I think she was being considered as a potential title challenger for Yuani and Jacek at the time. Um, and uh, she ended up getting beat. Yeah, it was. It was in Krakow in Poland. I just double checked the dates back in April, 2015. Lost by armbar, coincidentally, in the first round. Um, and that was a flight, uh, so, sorry, that was a straw weight title bid kind of hit the buffers. And like it's like history repeating itself, sort of five years on. Here we are now, August, 2020, on the verge of a title shot again, takes a dangerous fight, 
loses by armbar, and you you got to wonder whether that title shot's ever going to come now. I was most intrigued by this fight on the main card, if I'm being honest, because I didn't think that this was going to be a banker for Joanne Coldwood. And I don't say that with all the knowledge in the world with regards to what Jennifer Meyer brings to the table. It's more with regards to just the women's flyweight division. And in not just the women's flyweight, I'd say all the women's divisions in general. I, th- I still think women's MMA is developing. Um uh, still at a slower rate than where the men's division is in 2020 that it's kind of sometimes hard for me to gauge where some of these fighters are in terms of their skill set and their ability and uh, when some of these matchups present themselves i'm not entirely sure or super confident in terms of how i think it's going to play out obviously there's a some, there's a few exceptions with regards to a rose namajunas or yana yon jacek jean bailey and of course amanda nunes and, and valentina shevchenko but Sometimes it's really hard for me to gauge how it's going to shake out, and this was one of them. And I didn't think this was going to be a walkover for Joanne Coldwood whatsoever. And to be honest with you, with that first round, the four minutes and 29 seconds that we got, I don't think Jojo performed well. Definitely not on the ground, obviously, because that's how the fight finished. But even standing, I thought Jennifer Meyer had the, you know, got the best of her uh, in all aspects of, of where the fight, fight was. And it makes you think why she took the fight. And only she will ultimately know. But I'd like to think that it's COVID times and fighters want to stay active. They obviously uh, want to get paid. This is how they make a living. And although she was essentially in line to fight for the title, there was no kind of schedule in place with regards to when Valentina Valentina Shevchenko um, was due to be ready to, to compete again and to fight again, right? And so, you know, on paper, it made all the sense in the world. Okay, you could fight. She's based in Vegas. You could fight in Vegas. There's no travel involved. She's obviously in the gym every single day, uh, training and getting better. And this is a good opportunity to get in there. Uh, on paper, probably look, look like a, a favorable matchup for her and her, her team. Uh, stay busy. Stay super sharp so that when you do fight Valentina Shevchenko, uh, you'd be ready for her. With that performance, yo, she should not be fighting Valentina Shevchenko. You know, because you need to get through the Jennifer Myers of the world if you're going to be ready to fight the champion and to to even compete. I think Shevchenko, if you look at you know past few performances, I think the biggest challenge for the UFC right now in that flyweight division is to present a worthy contender to the public, where you can convince fans that Fighter X is going to you know pose a legitimate problem for Shevchenko because she's so damn good and dominant in that in that weight class and, and, I, and I, I don't even think the Jennifer Meyer performance and win over Calderwood does that for me I mean I, I thought it was a good performance for Meyer great win obviously with Shevchenko tweeting after the fight that hey I'll be ready for you and I look forward to fighting to you know fighting you next it seems like that's a lock uh you know I think that's gonna be a fairly easy payday and title defense for Valentina Shevchenko if I'm being honest but um, yeah, it's a real shame for Jojo because um, we've had a chance to interview her. She's a fantastic person, great personality. Um, she's very unique. She definitely has that it factor. Uh, but unfortunately, she just keeps um, coming up short. It's almost not too dissimilar from Michael Bisping, you know? Uh, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. She still has time on her side. Like I said, the women's flyweight division is ever developing. And ultimately, with Shevchenko as a dominant champion, I don't think you're ever just, just one or two wins away from getting a title shot, especially if you're in that top 10. So all is not lost. 
Um, and it was a little disheartening uh, and scary to know that she did pass out backstage uh, after the fight. Uh, it looks like, you know, given her social media um, post that seems you know, everything seems to be okay now. Thank God, touch wood, which is you know great to hear. But um, yeah, uh, just a, just a a real shame that things played out the way they did. But for Jennifer Meyer, you know, kudos to her. She was coming in, uh, I guess, to try and prove a point, knowing that hey, I'm just essentially being served up as a uh, as a stay busy fight for Joanne Calderwood, and all of a sudden, boom, an armbar later, and now you're going to be fighting for the title. So good for her. Yeah, and uh, she, she's leapt three places in the official UFC rankings. She's still ranked only third, though. Cynthia Calvillo is actually uh, ranked number two. Caitlin Chikagin is still number one. She's recently had the title fight and, and, and lost out. Um, I did I did sort of uh, wonder whether the UFC might go down the, Cynthia Calvillo, down the Cynthia Calvillo route next, but it seems like Dana White's already come out and said, no, Jennifer Meyer's getting the shot. So, um, But yeah, it, it, it's just... It must be so frustrating for, for, for Joe Calderwood and her team because she stepped in on short notice on a fight that had very little upside for her. you know. And this is the whole risk-reward thing that you make as a fighter. And I guess the uh, the reward for her was that this is a time to make a statement and cement my title shot rather than hope that it happens. Um, but obviously it's a, two, it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? You know, you just... While you can obviously cement your chance... There's always that danger, um, especially when you're facing someone else who is, I think she was ranked fifth or sixth in the world uh, coming into this, Jennifer Meyer. So you're facing someone who is legit and is, is a threat. And uh, we saw that that um, that that shooter box striking um, early on. And obviously she's got that. She's got the ground game to match. And, uh, you know, she uh, she may not be the biggest name in that division, but she's obviously very dangerous on the feet and very dangerous on the mat. So is she the most, you know, the uh, the clearest, the most present danger for, for Valentina Shevchenko? I guess she probably is right now. Um, and uh, while the champion is dominant, you've just got to line up the next best each time, I think, you know, and it's up to the, it's up to the pack to catch up to the champion. So, um, but as you say, Joanne Calderwood, if she gets one more win against, I mean, maybe a Jessica I or a Lauren Murphy or someone like that, get a win against them, you're right back in the mix once again. So um, it'll be interesting to see where she goes from here. I would imagine uh, the sensible thing for her would be take a couple of months off, maybe get a fight by the end of the year or early early 2021 and then make another run uh, by next summer. And uh, hopefully by next summer she's back in position again. Um, I don't see Valentina Shevchenko going anywhere in a hurry. So uh, that title shot and that fight may well still be there for her if she can pick up another couple of wins. Someone who uh, shot their shot, so to speak, uh, at the weekend was Vicente Luque, um, who picked up a a good, good win over Randy Brown. Uh, Luque, one of the more exciting guys in that UFC welterweight division, always brings the action, always goes for the finish. And uh, against Randy Brown, who many people thought would offer a really tricky test for him, uh, finished him by knockout. Second round, uh, with just a few seconds to go in that second round. And uh, called out Nate Diaz, of all people. I think it's probably the most most outlandish call-out we've had so far in 2020. I think it's a bit of a stretch. From a meritocratic standpoint, he makes a a good point. They're ranked very closely together. Um, And if you're looking purely at rankings... That fight makes sense. 
But if you're looking in the real world, it makes no sense whatsoever. So um, big win for him. I'd like to see him face Wonderboy again, to be honest. I think I think if he wants to show his evolution, that is a natural next step for him. But uh, a huge a huge finish for him again. And uh, he, he just gets a little bit better with every fight, I think. And it's good to see someone just con- just making small small tweaks to his game every time you see him. And he's moving his way up that welterweight ladder. How impressed were you with uh, Vicente Luque? And uh, who do you want to see him in with next? Yeah, very impressed. That kind of goes back to your point from earlier on with regards to Sanford MMA and Henry Hooft, because I believe he was uh, in the same training camp, same gym, uh, preparing for this uh, event alongside Derek Brunson. So all in all, just a fantastic week. Um, for that gym and for that team, for that camp, and Henry Hooft, who, for a while, regardless of what gym uh, he's affiliated with or what camp he's affiliated with, he is just a fantastic coach. You know, he's obviously trained the likes of Rashad Evans and Rumble Johnson, just to name a few, and obviously Kamar Usman just moved away um, from from that gym. So, very impressed with Vicente Luque. Um, and look, the only couple of losses he's got in his record in the last kind of five years or so are. Stephen Thompson and Leon Edwards. So a title challenger and someone who's potentially going to fight for the title probably in the next year or so anyway, right? So he's he, he's already, you know, assured everyone that, look, he is on the door, knocking on the door on that elite group of fighters and, and he's just going to get that one big, I think, signature win to prove that he can hang with the absolute best of the best in that division. With that win, that kind of basically brings him back into the top 10. So he's number 10 right now. And yeah, take your pick, mate. Rafael de Sanos is ahead of him. I'm, I'm up for that. Michael Chiesa, I'm up for that. Uh, Damian Meyer, I'm up for that. I, I'd love the, the rematch against uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And I think that's the range that you're looking at in terms of a potential next opponent for him. Because after Stephen Thompson, it's the Tyron Woodley, the Jorge Masvidal's, the Leon Edwards, Colby Covington's, and Gilbert Burns of the world. So... He's, he's not going to get any of those guys right now, but there's two or three guys ahead of him in, in the rankings that I think would make all the sense in the world. So I'll take any one of those. And all round, just fantastic. I mean, even though the Nate Diaz call-out was a little bit, you know, <laughs> like you said, outlandish, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. The overall package, you know, he he performs really well. Most, most of the time, he's going to get a finish in the fight. Uh, he's got that Brazilian background, speak, speaks very good English. What's not to like about Vincent Vicente Luque? And you know what? He's also, um, you know, what, 28 years old. So he's probably just now entering his prime. So can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah. No, he's he's uh, he's a very exciting fighter. I love watching Vicente Luque fight. And uh, I don't know exactly what direction they're going to take with him next. But he's one of those guys who absolutely needs to be fighting two or three spots ahead of him. He needs to be looking for progress. And uh, I do a feature every week for junk for MMA Junkie called Call Out Collection, where we gather together all of the all of the fighter call outs and then assess how realistic they are. Obviously, the Vicente Luque call out of Nate Diaz not massively realistic, but the other thing that didn't play in his favour, he's such a nice guy. Like he called out Nate Diaz in the most respectful way possible. The only way you're going to get Nate Diaz to fight you is to piss him off. And, and Vicente doesn't have that in him, I don't think. He was, he was like, oh, I'd love to fight. You know, I know he'd probably rather fight Connor or, or whatever, but I think it would be a great fight. There's no way it won't be a great fight. Totally agree with him. I think it would be an outstanding fight. And I think it's a fight that he could win as well. I genuinely do. But that fight is not happening. So it's, uh, it's going to be um, interesting to see which way 
they uh, which way they match him? Will they put him in with one of the more grapple-heavy guys like Chiesa or Maya? Will they put him in there with another striker? So, um, but if he gets a win in his next fight, then I think he's knocking on the door. So that'll be interesting to see. And uh, very quickly, Sandu, the first main card fight tonight: Bobby Green, Lando Venata, uh, a rematch of their first fight, which was a draw. Um, Bobby Green, I don't think left any doubt whatsoever in this fight. I think he looked outstanding. When Bobby Green's on form like this, he's so good to watch. Like he's trash talking his opponent during the fight, and his uh, his his counter striking, I think, is outstanding. And uh, the way him and Lando just sort of meshed in the fight, I thought it was a really interesting fight to watch, and a big win for Bobby Green, who's kind of been away for a bit and is now sort of working his way back, and hopefully he can have maybe one or two more fights before, well, one fight before the end of the year and uh, a busy start to 2021. And who knows, he could make a little bit of a run at 55. Yeah, I think when you look at his record, 2018 and 2019 weren't great. You know, he got a win in January of 2018. And then the next two and a half years, he got two losses and was basically off our radars, just out, out of the scene, really. And he's one of those fighters where I think maybe it's just, your timing or whatever the case may be but the opportunity that he's had during this COVID era of quick turnaround fights especially in Vegas I mean he got the win over Clay Guida June 20th and then what we're talking five six weeks later he's back in there another main card fight against Lando Venata so that's a couple of wins under his belt 2020 has been very very good to him and Bobby Green's one of those characters like he kind of wears his heart on his sleeve you know Lots of raw, pure emotion coming out of him, especially if you had a chance to check out that post-fight interview. Just You could just see the emotion coming out of him. I was actually working the uh, the BT Sports Shift this past weekend, Simon, and it was hilarious because as soon as his name got called out as the winner, um, he kind of did this Triple H-esque kind of spitting out water just everywhere. And it, and it was hilarious because I'm obviously kind of like, Looking at that moment, right, okay, cool, that's a nice little social clip. Uh, I can tag Triple H, who kind of engaged with us on the BT Sport handle there. But then a part of me thought, hang on a second, with regards to, you know, all the COVID regulations, that's got to be a nut- that's got to be an absolute nightmare for the uh, the folks that go in in between the bouts to, I guess, sanitize uh, as much as they can. And you just had someone spit water all over the shop. So, um yeah, maybe they can have a word with uh, the fighters not to do that uh, while they're in the uh, in the octagon. But listen, all jokes aside, listen, if they can turn him around again on the next batch of fights in Vegas, I think he'll be very happy to get one more fight in before 2020 is up. Yeah, remarkably, that was only his third win since the summer of 2014. Can you believe that? Um, but he is, when he's on his day, he's a problem at 155 pounds and he's... He's one of those guys who, when you cover fight weeks, you always look for the characters. You always look for the people who are going to give you a soundbite. Someone who's going to give you something a little bit out of the ordinary. And Bobby Green is one of those guys. When you see his name on the fight card, your eyes always light up because you know he's always going to give you something. And uh, he normally produces something fun on fight night as well. And uh, that's exactly what he did this past weekend as uh, he scored the 26th win of his MMA career. Now, that was the main card of uh, the UFC event this past weekend. Very quickly, um, you mentioned the um, the situation with uh, Joanne Calderwood uh, passing out 
after her fight. We had an incident before the very first fight of the night, I think it was. It was oh, it was supposed to be... Uh, oh, sorry, no, it was supposed to be the uh, first fight of the main card, I think. It was going to be Trevin Giles versus Kevin Holland. And uh, Trevin Giles basically passed out, I think, uh, in either the medical area or he was about to make his walk and uh, he passed out and uh, was, was rushed off to hospital. Scary, scary time. I mean, to have two people pass out at the same event, that's that's pretty rare. Um, but for someone to be that close to a fight and then then to pass out, I mean, I, I'm not 100% sure what the official diagnosis has been of that. I've been off the grid a little bit the last two days. I've had a couple of days off. But um, but yeah, I mean, for, for a young athlete like that who who's in, in their prime and has had a few fights. It's not like he's never fought before and this is his debut on the big stage or anything. He's been around a bit and he's had he's fought in the UFC. To for that to then happen, scary stuff. And uh, you know, we wish him all the very best in his recovery and hopefully all is well and uh we can get to see him back in the octagon at some point in the future. But uh just quickly running down the prelims, Jonathan Martinez Good win over Frankie Sainz. That's another one of those fights I think should have been stopped quite a bit earlier than it was. I think that could have been finished at the end of the second round. It was allowed to go into the third. He took another 57 seconds of punishment that he probably needn't have taken. But Jonathan Martinez, who missed weight by four and a half pounds on the Friday, goes in and gets the win. Uh, Nathan, Nathan, uh, I think it's called... Manus, I think is how they pronounce it. It says it looks like Maness to me, but Nate, Nate Manus gets the win over Johnny Munoz after being hit in the nuts six times. Go back and watch Fight Pass. He gets hit in the nuts six times in that fight, um, gets the win. That is what you call a hard-earned victory right there. Uh, Jamal Emmons gets a good win over Vincent Cachero, who looked pretty good on his debut for a guy stepping up a weight class. And Chris Gutierrez um, and uh, Cody Durden fought to a unanimous draw. Durden had a big first round. Gutierrez came back on one, two, and three, um, and that finished as a draw. I don't know whether you were on duty for the prelim, Sandu. Did anyone stand out from from those for you? I mean, the the thing that I remember most about the prelims, and I was on duty, thanks for asking, was the nut shots. If I'm being honest, because that was a running theme throughout the entire card. By the end of the by the end of the the main event, there were ten nut shots in total, and so we had more nut shots than we had fights. Uh, which kind of leads me into one of the biggest takeaways from this fight weekend was just the fact that we had eight fights. This is one of the most cursed, snake-bitten cards in recent memory. And according to Wikipedia, this was the smallest UFC event since UFC 177 in August of 2014. We had it all. People being removed for undisclosed reasons. We had COVID get involved. We had uh, weight cut-related issues. We had people passing out during the broadcast which was just crazy to see how this was all unfolding mid-broadcast um but hey at the end of it we ended up getting uh, eight fights in total and it once again just shows that it doesn't matter what happens simon it really doesn't matter what happens the ufc just figures it all out they figure out a way uh to to get through the finish line put on these events put on these fights doesn't matter how big or small we literally went from a fight card with 15 bouts, Simon, the weekend before, to a fight card that had eight. Uh, absolutely incredible. So um wasn't the biggest names, apart from 
I think the main and co-main had kind of the biggest kind of stories and kind of angles and fan interest heading into the to the, the actual card itself. But um, man, the UFC is a train that does not stop. Man, does not stop. No, I've I've written about this many times. I think they're probably the most agile sports organization I can I can think of. You know, I mean, when it's main event pullouts, I mean, you know, you think combat sports. If you can't sell the fight on the poster because it falls through, nine times out of ten, you know, the event is toast. But the way that the UFC build their cards and build their events, some people have been critical of the fact that the UFC have always placed their brand first. Um, but it's because of that that they're able to adapt so easily. If it, if it was all about, you know, the name on the poster every time, obviously if it's a Conor McGregor fight, or you know something like that. You've got a problem if that fight falls through. I mean, we lost John Jones versus Daniel Cormier at UFC 200, but they still managed to to improvise and adapt and put on a big show for what was a, a historic event for them at the time. So they're you know they're a bit they're they're past masters at this now. They've done it so many times, and the COVID thing has just proved it again. They've obviously got the financial clout to make some of this stuff happen, and they've got some rich friends who are helping them when it comes to uh, their friends over there in Abu Dhabi who are helpfully uh, building these incredible uh, facilities and bubbles for them to live in effectively and and, and to make these things happen. But they are the most agile organisation I I can think of in sports. And uh, yeah, I I think, you know, their ability to just roll with the punches or puns intended and and put a good product out there is, uh, is why they are the biggest and best in the world of what they do. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed that fight night. I've got to be honest. I know, as you say, they didn't have the they didn't have the big A listers on the card necessarily, but thoroughly enjoyed it. Even the fights that went to decision, I thought were interesting fights to watch. I thought the way they were covered was great, um, and uh, it just rolls along. We've got another event this weekend, but before the UFC kicks back in on Saturday, Friday night sees Bellator return with Bellator two forty three. Um, Valerie Lareda. Uh, any fans on Instagram will be familiar with her work. She is the uh, first fight of the night against Tara Tara Graf. Um, we've got some interesting prospects on the card. Nainoa Dung, uh, Hawaiian lightweight, is on that card. Uh, AJ Agazam is on that card. Uh, Adam Boric against... Uh, I'm not sure who Boric has got. It was going to be Derek Campos, but that fight has been switched up. Um, but Adam Boric is, is back up and running as well after he got knocked out of the Featherweight Grand Prix. But you've got that four-fight main card. Miles Jury, former UFC uh, veteran, taking on Georgie Caracanyan. Curtis Millinder, again, another former UFC uh, fighter, taking on, in fact, two former UFC fighters. Millinder versus Sabah Hamasi. And then the two fights at the top of the card that I thought we could quickly cover, Sandu. Uh, heavyweight, Matt Mitrione versus Timothy Johnson. Now, Timothy Johnson is one of those guys who, he seems to have been around forever. They put him in with uh, Tyrell Fortune, who at the time was an undefeated uh, up-and-coming contender who was getting frustrated that he wasn't being thrown in with the big guys. And uh, standout wrestler, heavy-handed, goes in there with Tim Johnson, and Tim Johnson knocks him spark out. Huge, huge shock, but it just shows you that uh, Tim Johnson has still got some power. He's now facing Matt Mitrione, who's looking to push himself back into the heavyweight championship picture himself. So fascinated by that one, Sandu. I mean, I don't know how much Bellator you consume these days. You're you're largely on UFC duty, but um, 
what are your thoughts on someone like Matt Mitrione getting back into that championship picture at heavyweight? It's almost like a legends league. He's kind of like the young gun at the top of that Bellator heavyweight division. Yeah, I just think it's a fun fight. If I'm being honest, it's it's a fun heavyweight fight. You know, sign me up for that. And uh, looking at Matt Mitrione's record, yeah, he's got a bit of work to do because he hasn't had the best run over the last couple of years, right? And you're absolutely right. He's had an opportunity to fight some legends. And hey, look, he's going to win over Fedor Emelianenko. Not too many fighters can say that, right? Um, but yeah, just in general, and I'm kind of glad that you brought it up. Sorry. Better talk for me, they just need to try and do a lot more work when it comes to the promotion, the marketing, advertising their cars, just to try and get back into the conversation a little bit more. Because I think with them, with the lights being off for as long as they were, and the UFC essentially just chugging along, man, I mean, it, it was hard enough for the for Bellator to compete when they had some momentum with you know the, the schedule that they had uh, for all these years, but to be completely out of the spotlight for what four or five months or however long it's been, it's tough, mate. It's very very tough, and so I, I just need to see more, you know. And yeah, you're right. These days, most of my time and energy and effort, you know, is poured into the work that I do for BT Sport and BT Sport is a UFC broadcast partner. So back when I was a journalist working for MMA Junkie or for ESPN, on a day-to-day basis, I was kind of consuming more of the sport in general. And look, I'm still consuming the entire sport um, on a daily basis, but it's with a different lens now. You know, it's with a different eye. What I'm looking for is completely different. I may be paying attention a lot more these days to what's happening with the UFC and the UFC roster and how that can help me with my gig and my job for BT Sport than I would be perhaps the Bellator roster or the One Championship roster. I still get all the press releases. I still keep in touch with everyone at all these organizations, some of uh, the organizations I've got some really good friends in. But yeah, I mean, this fight card, it's a fight card and it's got some names that we're familiar with. Are there any titles on the line? No. Um, are there some fights that you know do intrigue me? Yes. Uh, will I tune in on, on fight night? I'm not sure, right? Because the UFC is going to get my attention every Saturday night, primarily because I'm working a shift, so I don't really have a choice in the matter. What am I going to do with my Friday night? Am I going to watch a better tour? I don't know. I don't know right now. Will I catch the highlights? Will I will I hop on social media? Maybe see some clips on Twitter or Instagram? Probably. I think that's the very least that I'll do. Uh, but for it to be appointment viewing for me at this stage, even with COVID and me spending most of my time at home, it's still it's asking a lot. It's asking a lot. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how Bellator, um, I guess, structure the next kind of couple of months and and how to kind of get back into the picture proper. Because I don't think they're really back into the conversation um, as they were before, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that's my kind of long-winded way of kind of explaining how I'm kind of consuming the sport in general versus just the UFC. But, yeah, look, Matt Mitrione, Tim, Tim, Tim Johnson, even if I'm not a journalist anymore, I can tell you that's going to be a fun fight. And I'd and I definitely tune in at the very least to see that and the main event. And the main event, and I'm sure you can tee it up for assignment, is fantastic. Michael Chandler, Benson Henderson, a rematch. Love that one. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a big one. I mean, it's a rematch. You know, it was a very, very close fight the first time around. I think the situation with this is Benson Henderson has come so close 
to winning a second title. He won, obviously, you know, he won the uh, the UFC lightweight belt. He's looking to win a belt in Bellator, and uh, he, he's fallen narrowly short. And the most recent time was against Michael Chandler at Bellator 165 in November 2016, lost by split decision in a title fight. I mean, what what an agonizing way to miss out, to get knocked out or to be shut out. Annoying, frustrating, but it's decisive. And I think over time you can say, right, okay, I can deal with this, move on. But to lose by split decision, you know, it's it's an agonizing way to get beat. Uh, he then bounced back or tried to bounce back against uh, Patricky Pitbull and lost by split decision again. So he's lost back-to-back split decisions uh, in, in San Jose. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed he's ever gone back there after that, but he did. He's won four fights in a row since then. He's beaten Roger Huerta, Sada Ward, Adam Piccolotti in San Jose. And most recently, a fight that I was at in uh, in Dublin, Ireland, where uh, he outpointed Miles Jury. Um, so he's on a good four-fight win streak. He's taken on Michael Chandler, who has only had the one fight since he's lost the Bellator lightweight title. He lost uh, by first-round TKO to uh, Patricio Pitbull back at Bellator 221 in May last year. Uh, bounced back with an impressive first-round knockout of Sid- Sydney Outlaw at Bellator 237 in a catchweight fight. Now, this is the fight that will position the winner, in theory, for a shot at the gold. Um, we've got other players in that Bellator lightweight division who are looking and uh, looking to try and get themselves into the mix. Peter Queeley being one of them. I think he's going to take on Patricky Pitbull. And if he beats Patricky Pitbull, there is an obvious narrative there that he can then go on and challenge Patricio, who holds the belts at featherweight and lightweight. So um, I think if he gets a big win against the champ's brother, he might just jump the queue. But if we're talking cachet, name value, people who have been up there for years and years, it's about these two who are fighting in the main event this weekend. Benson Henderson, Michael Chandler. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I, I do enjoy myself a bit of Bellator, so I'm looking forward to tuning into that. And the co-main event, just very quickly, Timothy Johnson. He he's one of these guys. He came in. He actually he's one of these few guys who left the UFC with a winning record. He he, he went four and three in the UFC, joined Bellator to absolutely no fanfare whatsoever, and got knocked out in the first round in his first two fights. Czech Congo knocked him out. And then Vitaly Minikov, who for me is the best heavyweight in Bellator right now, he knocks him out as well. So it's like, okay, so is he just going to be mid-card journeyman Tim Johnson? Put him in with uh, Tyrell Fortune, presumably as some sort of some sort of benchmark. Okay, if you can get past this guy Tyrell, you're onto the big, you know, the big names. And then he sparks out Tyrell Fortune in half a round at Bellator 239. And uh, now he's got Matt Mitrione. If he beats Matt Mitrione, you've got yourself a real unlikely hero, sort of uh, not not rags to riches, but a guy who has really never really been considered a contender for a title on the world stage. If he gets through Matt Mitrione as well, and if he can finish him, boy, we've got ourselves a uh, a bit of a Cinderella man in that um, Bellator heavyweight division. So I'm looking forward to this. It's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. I like watching Curtis Millinder as well. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with him because he's a free agent after this fight, I think, or maybe the fight after. And I think he's intending on becoming a free agent and seeing where he can go. He's been in the UFC. He's been in Bellator. Where's he going to go next? Uh, 
his result on on Friday night may go some way to uh, helping helping his stock level and what kind of contract he gets offered from the various promotions you might be looking at him right now. But that's Friday night. That was Bellator 243. That's going to be live in the UK, I believe, on Sky Sports. Um, you'll get it on DAZN, I think, stateside. I don't know whether it's... Is it DAZN in Canada as well, Sandy? It certainly is. There you go. So uh, DAZN and Paramount over there in uh, in North America. And uh, Sky Sports for the main card. And I think it'll probably be YouTube or the Bellator app for the prelims. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check that out if you are at a loose end on Friday night. But Saturday night, we've got another fight night card coming from the UFC Apex. And uh, the Black Beast is in the main event. Derek Lewis takes on the most experienced man in the UFC heavyweight division, Alexei Olenek, um, who it's absolutely insane. This man is going to be making the walk for the 74th time in his mixed martial arts career. This man has 46 wins by submission. Like, I don't know many people who've had 46 fights. He's had 46 wins by submission. He's taken on the Black Beast. This is your quintessential class of styles. Striker, knockout artist versus a man who just wants to drag you to the mat and remove one of your limbs. It's going to be, it's going to be a really interesting fight. Um, what do you make of this one, Sandy? Because it's... It's a proper oh, it, this almost looks like a UFC one fight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Good thing about Olenek is he just fought very recently. You know, again, talking about COVID and getting some fights under your belt. He's probably the fresher of the two right now. Um, not that Derek Lewis didn't fight too long ago. He fought Elena Tifi, which I, actually at the time I thought was a very favorable fight for Derek Lewis. Like I think Latif is really a light heavyweight who was kind of just fancying his chances, moving up, you know, not having to cut weight and just, you know, see see how it goes. I just think physically, when you looked at Elia Latifi against Derek Lewis, you're like, yeah, oh my God, go back down to 205 because there are some big boys at heavyweight and you're just going to get oversized in, in all of these potential matchups. But um, for, for Olenek, yeah, he, he fought fairly recently, got a nice win over Fabrizio Vadum, who is now no longer in, in the UFC, but, you know, a former UFC heavyweight champion. But I really think this is all nicely set up. If Derek Lewis wins, Simon, and you know, you tell me uh, if I'm wrong here, he's currently ranked number four in the UFC heavyweight rankings. You know who's number three? Curtis Blades. And I think if Derek Lewis can get a win this weekend, that sets up a nice fight and a nice matchup with Curtis Blades, who, let's be honest, despite uh, picking up a win recently, isn't exactly in Dana White's good graces right now. Isn't in Dana White's good books. You know, Curtis Blades thinks, seems to think that he's already done enough to get a title shot. Dana White category, category, categorically, if I didn't say the damn word, denies it. Um, so I think he's, in the, he's in, in the need to pick up another win, even though he's on a nice win streak himself right now. Mate, Curtis Blades, Derek Lewis down the road. If Derek Lewis can get over Alexi Olenek, that's the fight to make. And depending on when that fight could potentially be scheduled down the road, and I know we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, that could even be for a fight uh, for a title, because we don't know what the situation is going to be with the heavyweight picture at the moment, do we? If Daniel Cormier wins and rises up from the sunset, then you've got a vacant heavyweight championship. If Stephen Miocic wins, that he might call it a day himself, right? So I think both Lewis and Blades are in really good positions right now. And listen, who? Who in the UFC's marketing department wouldn't want to have that UFC championship belt 
on the black beat. He's so damn marketable. He's so he's so much fun. People, he's like one of the fighters in the UFC roster in general that may not be pound for pound one of the best elite fighters that the UFC have. But I'll tell you what he's got going for him. He is very well known, or he's at least in the conversation of one one of the fighters that the UFC have that the casual fan knows, that people that don't really keep up with the sport on a week-to-week basis are aware of. Oh, Derek Cruz is fighting? Yeah, I'll tune in for that. Oh, he's the guy that did the whole hot balls thing and had that you know fun interaction with Joe Rogan, isn't he? Yeah, I'll tune in for that. Oh, the Black Beast. Yeah, I'll tune in. So... You know, Alexei Olenek, you know, the the Russian veteran with a million fights, probably doesn't have the kind of uh, widespread mainstream appeal that, a, uh, that the Black Beast has. So I think this has been made for, for Derek Lewis to try and you know, get that win and then set himself up for a fight with, with Curtis Blades down the road. But I'll tell you what Derek Lewis needs to do, Simon, and that's avoid any exchanges on the ground. Because if it gets to the ground, then I think it's going to be a very, very short night for him. And a nice easy win for Alexi Olenek. So Derek Lewis, keep it keep it standing and banging, swang and bang, and then I think you'll be good. Yeah, it's the uh, the Black Beast versus the Boa Constrictor um, clash of styles. I had a great chat with Alexi Olenek in in Vegas um, at his last fight. He he was uh, he was on good form, and uh, he decided to bring his striking out to play in his last fight, which surprised the hell out of everybody. And he was like, what's he doing? Why is he standing there throwing shots? He's just take the fight to the mat. But um, I suspect he won't be doing that against Derek Lewis. I think that is a recipe for disaster and a trip to the hospital. So um, I expect him to look to get this fight to the mat and uh, add to his ridiculous number of submissions uh, by... uh, taking Derek Lewis's neck home with him on, on Saturday night. Co-main event is a fascinating one at middleweight. Former UFC middleweight champion Chris Weidman is taking on Amari Akhmedov. This is Chris Weidman who has won one fight since May 2015. One fight. Uh, and that was an arm triangle submission of Kelvin Gasolum. But he's lost five others in that spell, which is insane if you think about it he's been finished by Rockhold finished by Romero finished by Musasi finished by Jacare Souza and most recently after uh, attempted to move up to light heavyweight finished by Dominic Reyes so he's not just losing these fights Sandu he's getting put away um, which has got to be a worry um, he's taken on Amari Akhmedov who is one of the toughest toughest operators you could fight at 185 pounds He's on a, um, I think it's five, five out of six of his last fights he's won. And the other one he drew against Marvin Vittori. I mangled that sentence. But yeah, he's, un, he's unbeaten in six. He's won five of them and drawn one. Um, but he has absolutely no name value whatsoever outside of hardcore fans who follow the sport regularly. He's been around for ages. Um, and uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't lost since April 2016. Um, and uh, he's beaten some decent names Tim Bochy and Heinish Zach Cummins Abdul Razak Al-Hassan who we saw going absolutely absolutely crazy in his last fight and just getting edged out um, this is a big fight for him too um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this one goes a lot of people fancy Ahmedov to win this I've gone on, on record and picked 
Weidman. I think this is, but I do think this is probably his last go. If he wants to, if he wants to get back to the belt, he absolutely has to win this fight. Um, so I'm looking looking for a big performance from Chris Weidman this weekend. But he's up against it against a really really tough guy. Um, how do you see this one, Sandu? Is this is this Weidman's final fling? Do you think? Yeah, it has to be. I mean, this is a, this is probably as favourable as a matchup as Chris Wyden could expect at this stage, given his run, uh, dropping back down to middleweight. I mean, look, it's not as if he's been fighting bums. Luke Rockhold, former UFC champion, lost by TKO. Yoel Romero, lost by a knockout. And Yoel Romero was a, a title challenger. Lost to Gegard Masasi by TKO. Gegard Masasi, Bellator champion. Ronaldo Jacare Souza lost to him by knockout. Ronaldo Jacare Souza is pretty much one of the best fighters in the last 10 years not to win a UFC championship belt. And then Dominic Reyes at light heavyweight, who is a career light heavyweight, just gave John Jones a run for his money and most people, me included, thought he won that fight. Those are the people, those are the fighters Chris Weidman has lost to. And the one win he has over his last six fights against Kelvin Gastelum Maybe he's just caught Kelvin Gastelum on a bit of a downturn as well. You know, it's not as if Kelvin Gastelum has been cooking on gas and firing on all cylinders either. You know what I mean? But yeah, Chris Weidman, he really, at 36 years of age, it's now or never. Uh, and if he loses, whether it's something he's thought about himself or his camp have thought about, or if it's one of those situations where the UFC kind of talk him into it, retirement could be on the cards, you know? If you, if you lose and you're looking at a record where he's lost six of his last seven, it's not great, is it? Uh, and if he still wants to continue to fight, I don't think it should be in the UFC. I think then you've got to start looking at other options. You've got, you've got to start looking at the better tours of the world or maybe looking ahead at 2021, maybe see if you can sneak into the PFL uh, roster because at least that way, you're still working for a, a promotion that's pretty much based just in the US. You win five fights. Uh, with a less caliber of a, of opponent on that run, and you're going to cash in a million dollars. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? But that's let's not count a chicken just yet. You know, Chris Weidman. I still think when he's firing on all cylinders and on his day, can still compete with the absolute best 185 pound fighters in the world. Not so much 205, but definitely 185. But he's got to show us something. He's got to show us something, Simon. He's got to show it to himself. I'm sure his confidence right now, as much as perhaps he'd want to um, deny it, it must be at an all-time low. How can it? How can someone who's lost five of his last six in the fashion that he's lost be riding any sort of self-confidence coming into this fight? He's lucky that he's got a nice co-main event slot here, right? So at least in the essence of carrying a fight card, he doesn't have to do the bulk of the fight week duties in terms of media interviews and obligations, headlining a card, which he's pretty much had to do for the majority of his career, if I'm being honest. But so much riding, so much riding on this fight for him. I'm like you, Simon. I'm picking him, but I'm not picking him with the with all the confidence in the world, just given his run. I don't know if his chin is gone. I don't know if he's susceptible to getting knocked out more so now than he was maybe four or five years ago. But... I'm very curious to see how this fight plays out in terms of where Chris Weidman is now and where his long-term career could be, whether it's even retirement as well. Yeah, I mean, you've got a situation where a guy who's won five of his last six, he's taken on a guy who's lost five of his last six. Um, and the guy who's lost five of his last six is the guy with the name value, the guy who we've both picked to win, uh, and the guy with the most to lose heading into fight night on Saturday night. 
The other fight that I wanted to talk to you about before we wrap up, Sandu, is uh, the fight third from top of the the fight card. The UK's own Darren Stewart, the dentist, has an appointment with Maki Patolo, uh, who has the brilliant fighting nickname of Coconut Bombs, um, on Saturday night in a middleweight contest. It's a big fight for both men. Maki Patolo... Uh, lost his UFC debut after coming through the Contender Series, uh, but has picked up a win since then and he's now looking to build some momentum. Stewart, meanwhile, was building a nice little run together. He beat Bevan Lewis and then uh, Derham Wynn and uh, he was due to he was due to fight at UFC London. We had all the upheaval over COVID and all the rest of it and he ended up fighting Bartos Fabinski at Cage Warriors 113 as a pair of contracted UFC fighters. A, a really, really unique situation. Um, and he lost that fight by unanimous decision. Bartosz Fabinski um, just ground him down for three rounds and, and claimed the win. Um, I think against Maki Patolo, he's more likely to face a dance partner who's prepared to throw some leather at him. And that's where I think Darren Stewart absolutely shines. Great counter-striker. Really slick hands, and um, if he's on his game, I think he's in a position to pick up a win and get back, uh, get back onto form again after that slip up at Cage Warriors. But uh, yeah, interested to see this one. It's it's the uh, the Brits are back in action again. So you know, it was rude. It seems rude not to talk about the dentist. What do you what do you make of him? Yeah, just going back to that situation with Cage Warriors. What a bizarre scenario that was, and. You know, he done Cage Warriors a solid, but I think that scenario also presented him with an opportunity to get paid, um, which again, we talked about this a lot, right? During this COVID era, people want to try and fight, but also get paid. This is how they make their living. It's a big fight for him. It, it really is. Um, I was actually quite shocked to see him on the car because I thought, you know, most of the uh, the UK-based fighters, I thought the UFC would try and get over to Fight Island. Um, he's one of those guys, much like uh, Paul Craig. I think Paul Craig... Um, um, has an opportunity. I, I think his visa is expiring soon. But for 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 Darren Stewart to fight in Las Vegas at the Apex, you know that the thing is people don't realize this, Simon. He's not exactly making the most money in the world. But fighting in Abu Dhabi would have been a, a lot cheaper for him, or a lot more cost effective than flying in Ve- fly, you know, fighting in Vegas, right? When you think about you know all the other costs that you know come with that situation, so. It's a big fight for him. I'm probably going to pick him uh, to, to, to win. Um, but I, I do feel for him just for the fact that he uh, he took that L and it happened to be on the Cage Warriors banner. So I think this is almost a, a situation where Darren Stewart wants to prove that the UFC is where he belongs. And I think that will be the big takeaway coming out of this fight and this weekend if he can get the win to say, you know what, I am a UFC caliber fighter. Yeah, and um, it, was a, it was a strange one because he was facing... A UFC welterweight, basically, who had stepped up to middleweight and obviously did the business and has now just since decided, do you know what? I'm going to stay at 185. So Bartosz Fabinski, the butcher, who's been around been around the scene for ages, he's very, very tough, um, very gritty. And uh, he, he really did show his best against Darren Stewart in that fight. Shut Stewart striking down completely. Stewart will be looking to really make a statement on Saturday night against Maki Patolo. Who's got a little bit of a little bit of hype behind him, having come through the contender series? I know the UFC loves to build those guys out of the contender series, um, and 
follow their you know follow their career through. Um, Stuart obviously has come through the UK scene, and uh, he's going to want to make a statement. I'm looking forward to seeing how he gets on. Um, very very quickly, just to quickly run down uh, what else we have on that fight card. Yana Kunitskaya takes on Julia Stoilerenko. And uh, kicking off that main card, Benil Dariush versus Scott Holtzman. That one could be an interesting one to watch. Uh, Dariush has got outstanding submissions, but when he's been dragged into slugfest in the past, he's managed to produce some quite spectacular knockouts over the uh, over the last couple of years. Scott Holtzman just loves a tear-up, so, so that should be a good one. Someone else who loves a tear-up is Tim Means, and he's going to be the feature prelim against Loriano Staropoli. Um, we've got Nazrat Hakparast on the card. And uh, Andrew Sanchez is making his return at middleweight as well. So um, plenty, plenty to get your teeth into uh, this weekend. And uh, but it's really for for me, it's about those top three fights. Sandy Darren Stewart flying the flag for the Brits. Then you have got former champion Chris Weidman on a real crossroads fight against Amari Medov. And then the two big guys striking versus grappling. Derek Lewis versus Alexi Olenek. It should be another good one, Sandu. We've got a double a double header Friday night, Saturday night, and uh, we can unpack it all next week. We absolutely can. And for those of you who want to help the Brit Pack out with a bit of uh, love, you can do that very simply, very easily, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Drop us a rate, drop us a review. Really does help us out. And I appreciate and a thumbs up to everyone that has done that so far. We have been looking at them and paying attention to them as they come in. And for anybody else that pays attention uh, to what we've been talking about over the last kind of, I guess, couple of months now since we launched the show, where we really would like everyone to help uh, support the show and is to go to our Britpack.substack.com website. That's Britpack.substack.com. That is headquarters of the show subscribe there even though you're listening to us on apple or spotify or whatever uh, your podcatcher is just by going to the website and subscribing that goes a long way in helping us in terms of what we have planned for the show down the road and then outside of that if you want to follow myself or simon simon is at simon head on twitter and at simon head sport on instagram and i am at sandu mma across the board facebook twitter instagram you name it and yes, Simon, this is great because I think this weekend um, is it's good that we've got a double header with Bellator coming back. But it's a nice, I guess, hors d'oeuvre as we head into the big fight of the month. Steve Miocic versus Daniel Cormier 3, which takes place the following weekend in Las Vegas at the Apex. And man, I can't wait for that. So I think next week's show is going to be a big one as we reflect on this weekend's action, and then we preview what is arguably the most important heavyweight fight in UFC modern-day history. Yeah, there's some absolute bangers on the undercard as well. Sean O'Malley's on that card. Junior Dos Santos, Jarzino Rosenstrike is on that card. Magomed Ankalaev and Ayan Kutalaba are going to go at it again. If you remember what happened between those two the first time, it all went off. John Dodson versus Mirab Devalishvili is on that card as well. And a whole load of other talents are going to be on that fight card a little bit further down the order. We will go through all of that on next week's show, as well as unpacking all the uh, the highlights from this weekend. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, yeah, get on the sub stack, hit us up on social media, enjoy the fights, and we'll be back in a week's time. Yeah.